Squares Fielder. He's gone to the dogs. Welcome once again to the Gone to the Dogs podcast. This is your host, Steve Fielder. Mighty glad to be visiting with you again today. I brought my partner in crime, Mark Miller, who he and I have got a project pup here that we're going to be talking about today. And this podcast is going to be a little different than the ones that we've had in the past uh, in that we're basically going to talk about starting pups. And uh, But before we get into that, I want you to meet Mark, somebody that I haven't known all that long, feel like I've known him all my life. Uh, he definitely is a coon hunter. And uh, one thing about this sport, if you're a coon hunter, then you've got a big fraternity of brothers and sisters out there, sorority, I guess you'd call the girls. But at any rate, uh, mighty pleased to have Mark Miller of Taylorsville, North Carolina, on the podcast today. Mark, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Steve. Well, that's good. Is it nice and balmy and cool there in, in the mountains of North Carolina today? It is uh, already upper 70s, and this humidity is crazy here. <laughs> well, they laugh at me out at DU Supply. You know, I say I never talk about the weather, and then the first thing I do is talk about the weather. But, uh, yeah, well, it's that. I don't know when the official dog days of summer. Do you ever hear that expression? Oh, I do, but I think they've already begun here. It's dry and just hot day yeah. and night. You just haven't had any rain, have you? No, we ain't had no rain in uh, two weeks. Wow, it's yeah. Well, typically here in Florida, here we are, we're getting <laughs> pretty deep in this weather, but... Typically here in Florida, we have those afternoon showers in the summertime. But uh, really, we're dry here too. So it's kind of dry all over. Well, let's get on to this coon hunting thing and talking about these pups and all that. Before we do, give me just a little short rundown of who Mark Miller is. Tell me where you from you've already mentioned Taylorsville. Tell our listeners kind of where that is in state of North Carolina, and anything about your family, the kind of work you do, and those kind of things. We'll get that out of the way and then get right to it. Okay. Well, I was born and raised in a little town called Sawmills, North Carolina, which lays at the bottom from Lenore and Blowing Rock mm-hmm. along the Blue Ridge Parkway and. I lived there about my whole life until I met my wife and uh, we got married. We've been married 22 years now. Mm-hmm. And uh, we bought land and uh, that's how we ended up in Taylorsville. I see. So Taylorsville's kind of in the foothills, isn't it? Yes, it's uh, on out towards, uh, it sits at the foot of the Brushy Mountains, which goes in you know, over Wilkesboro and then back towards uh, Boone, North Carolina, back back towards the Blue Ridge Mountains again. Well, it's unfortunate that I didn't know you at the time that I had the cabin in Ashe County because we wouldn't have been all that far apart. 
there I had a cabin in a little place called Baldwin, which was between Jeff, uh, West Jefferson and, and Todd, uh, North Carolina, which Todd is fairly close to Boone, and people know Boone for Appalachian State University and and um, Blowing Rock. Uh, there's a big tourist area right nearby. Beautiful part of the country for sure. Um, so uh, what kind of work do you do, Mark? I have worked for Caldwell County Schools for 25 years now. I'm a school bus technician now. I see you keep the buses running, rolling yep, out I, there on the I, highways. Yep, I uh, I work uh, like road calls, and I go to the schools and work in the parking lots on buses. I see. Well, so you go out and, and work on them while the kids are in school, so they'll be ready to roll when the bell rings, right? That's right. <laughs> the bus has got to roll. That's right. Well, my brother was a school bus driver. He's retired now. Uh, he did that up in Tazewell County, Virginia, for many years. So, all right. Well, okay. We always kind of go down this road with our guests, and uh, uh, we'll get into that a little bit with you. Your coon hunting experience. When did that start for you? I probably started coon hunting when I was uh, about 13 years old. Uh, neighbor guy used to go with him. Uh, he would drag me along. I always have loved dogs. Mm -hmm. And uh, I went with him and then I got introduced to some of the competition dogs about, I was probably about 14 and a half with mm -hmm. a... I reckon he'd be a lifelong friend now, be Joe Wesson and the English dogs. And he mm -hmm. got me into competition hunting. And I probably competition hunted when I was 15 years old back in the 80s. I see. Well, you got involved in it fairly early in the game then. Uh, uh, just a little bit step back to your biography. Did you grow up in town or in the country or what was what was your growing up years like? <sighs> Sawmills was just a little small town, and uh, we just, it's kind of just country, just farmland, and not much mountainy around here. We, we just hunted around here back then, but it was nowhere near as populated as everywhere has become now. Yeah, that's amazing. I lived in Raleigh before I, uh, well, when I retired from the AKC, and at that time, they were saying about 100 people a day were moving into North Carolina, and I know that that area there uh, in in eastern North Carolina was definitely growing. But that's a story everywhere we go. It's amazing here in Florida just how much new new construction and, and all. And they say now that Florida is the third largest state in the country. And I can believe it. I'm looking at all these mm. folks down here. But well, what about those early coon hunts that you had? And all? is there any uh, memories that you have about them or kind of how, how describe how you got started out hunting there? Um, basically, just my love of dogs. And uh, mm -hmm. I just had yard dogs when growing up and uh, I just always, my grandpa was a rabbit hunter, mm -hmm. and I started with a 
a little two little beagles and running with a guy up the street that yeah. we had a little spot over in sawmills we could go back off and behind a bunch of housing development it's just all grown up we'd run rabbits day and night <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah well brings back a lot of memories for me too mm. that was something yeah. i always wanted to do and from a very early age I, I figured out that I wanted a dog involved in my hunting experiences, you know. I mean, some guys, kids just want to be out with a gun, you know, squirrel hunting or rabbit hunting. And I did that, too. But I always enjoyed it more when there was a dog involved. Oh, yeah. I always, even, I still love just dogging more than anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've even got into bear hunting in the last few years and with dogs and right. uh that's a hard chore in the mountains but uh, i really enjoy running bears with dogs also yeah now i don't believe you have any personal bear dogs do you no i, I don't have any personals uh as of now but you uh, hunt I, with some other guys I, I, I hunt with brad high and uh his bear dogs and uh He's got a really nice pack of bear dogs, and uh, yeah, bad things happen to bear dogs, and that's where my wife stepped in and said, "You can't have a bear dog because uh, I can't take it." <laughs> yeah, well, you know, we our families have to come first, and some hunters don't. I was listening to a podcast on Du uh, Hunting Supply. And uh, the guest, and I apologize for not recalling his name right now, but talking about how much involved uh, you are with hound hunting and how many days out there in the field. And Of course, these guys are mainly talking about big game hunting out west, I guess, uh, a lot of uh, lion and bobcat hunting, lynx hunting, that kind of thing. But um, – all of that, we still have to remember the family comes first, and and we're fortunate to have uh, spouses that support our activities, and I'm certainly blessed in that regard. But um, the ladies take a little bit different uh, perspective on these dogs. You know, they they do worry about them, and they are concerned when they uh, have injuries and all that. So. Well, okay. Uh, you're a. I imagine those bear dogs that that you hunt with are plot dogs. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, the plot dog, of course, originated in North Carolina, and with the plot family there, and so that's uh, they're very popular there and across the country. But you chose when you got into coon hunting. Let's talk about your progression here. Your personal dogs. Um, you know what? I know you like the Walker breed, and you had some nice hounds. How long have you had registered Walker dogs? Uh, I got uh, my first one probably fourteen years ago. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, before them, I I hunted English dogs. Oh, okay, okay. Now I met. Uh, I saw you at the American Plot Association breed days back in March, and your friend there that you were hunting with was he hunting a, an English dog or a blue dog? He was hunting a blue tick. Okay, okay, I see. Well, uh, what what kind of 
Do you remember the bloodlines on the English dogs you hunted back then? Uh, yeah, I hunted. Uh, this would be going way back. I hunted some dogs off Penny's Kentucky Kojak. Mm. Yeah. And uh, Blue Boy Red back then. Mm-hmm. That's Roland uh, Dickey's dog, I think. Yep. Down, Kojak, uh, of course, was Leroy Penny. Leroy Penny's. Uh, I hunted dogs off of them, and uh, later I hunted uh, Michigan Swamp Rooster dogs. Uh, yeah, Joe Wesson. Oh, okay. Uh, Joe Wesson had the sentence of rooster dogs, and uh, I got mine from Joe Wesson. I see. And I, mm-hmm. I hunted uh, Michigan Swamp Rooster dogs in. Yeah, I hunted with a lot of Swamp Rooster dogs when I lived in Michigan. Yeah, for sure. Of course, and then I lived right within about 15 miles of Larry Wilcox with the Thunder English dogs. Oh, yeah. Larry always had some really nice dogs. Started hunting with him when I first moved to Michigan and enjoyed a lot of good hunts with Larry. Right. Okay, well, then you made the jump to the Walker breed. What what was that all about? Uh, Well, I I know the guy that was – Tim Osborne, he was pretty high in the Walker dogs. Mm-hmm. And uh, him and Jim Farmer, they had the uh, TJ style slipper dog. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a nice sound, got to hunt with him. Uh, but Tim brought out this dog called Hardwood uh, Bean, solid yeah. black Walker dog. And I just loved the way he looked. Mm-hmm. Uh, big hound, big 80, 90 pound hound, blocky. And uh, I told him, I said, when, you, when the time's right, I want one from him. And that's what got me started in the uh, Walker dog. Okay, so you got a pup out of Bean, or how did I that got, I got a pup off Bean and a another female he had that was just as black as Bean off of Buckhorn Nighttime Savage. And I oh, just, yeah. Uh, and uh, he popped out of a nice litter of blackens, and I I got the only male out of the litter. You know, I remember when James Atwell and his dad had the Savage Dog, and he was doing really well in the hunts, and he also had the Overdrive Dog at that time. My buddy uh, David McKee down in uh, Whitmire, South Carolina, you may know David, uh, he's the president of the South Carolina Association, and he and I worked together at AKC. But he had a really nice female named Ann that was out of Savage, and I hunted with her many nights, uh, especially down at our friend Johnny Brinkley's in in, in uh, Tallahassee, Florida. But uh, that's a good bloodline right there. Oh, yeah. I had a female I got from uh, Darren Cobbler, that was direct on Savage also. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I bet they had nice mouth, didn't they? Oh, she had a great mouth. Uh, <laughs> I always get through the country, get gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, Darren owned Trackman's daddy, the Nocturnal Style dog. Oh, I see. Mm-hmm. And I got to hunt with him. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, out of Naylor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably one of the nicest hounds I've ever seen in the okay. woods. Now, where did he live? He lived in Spencer, Virginia, I think is what they call it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Just right yeah. across the North Carolina line into Virginia. I mean, you could drive 
right. back and forth within five minutes of North mm-hmm. Carolina, Virginia, where he lived. I got you. So, okay, so you take this dog out of Bean, and I, where do we go from there? I take him, uh, which he's a big old black. I think he got up to 82 pounds, uh, solid black muzzle face walker. And I, I, I just started putting all my time into this dog. Mm-hmm. What would you call uh, him, Mark? His name was Hardwood Dreamer. Mm-hmm. I pushed him uh, with some other help, some other friends. Uh, pushed him and got him tonight champion. We, I think I had him grand show at eight months old. Mm-hmm. Must he, have been he a, was a real looker. Then. Yeah. He was a looker. Beautiful straight legs. I mean, he had it looking. I took him... Uh, I think a little 13 months old to Southeast, no, to, to Grand American. Uh, won the training contest out of, back then, they must have been 100 dogs there that day on a Saturday. Mm-hmm. Uh, in their big training contest. I think I won it with 68 barks in 30 seconds. <laughs> That's getting it done. <laughs> he could get it. He's, He's a triple barker. Out for sure. Uh, had one win on him then. I think by the next year I come back, he he was granted at two year old, mm-hmm. and uh, I started following in the stud barn. You know, back then it was really good. A lot of big name dogs always showed up. Oh yeah, uh, I had my little setup too, and uh, most of the time I set up with Tim with hardwood bean, right and. Uh, Okay. Yeah, it, it went good for several years. I was doing that, and uh, I just kept pushing. Dreamer qualified him three times for the world. Uh, I made the top one hundred with him. Uh, I think him being a looker, we was breeding pretty good. Yeah. Uh, I could actually breed that dog and take him to a night hunt that night and win. Didn't, it didn't bother him at just, all. Mm-hmm. Didn't bother him at all. Uh, yeah. Got him up in age. He got some health issues, and uh, he went star only at a younger age. Mm. But uh, Waddy Marshall took him and tried to breed him, and Waddy Marshall is in uh, Grayson, Kentucky. Right. Uh, he owns a Silverado Dan dog mm-hmm. that's on the top reproducer list. For, uh, he's probably been on there six years now, consecutive. Right. Uh, they got the Midnight Rider dog. It's off a groomer. He's currently now on the current reproducers list. Also, mm-hmm. I yeah. think his him and his son Jack on Rider together. And while they had him up there, and we found out that he he was he'd gone sterile on us. Mm. Uh, we brought him, I brought him back home because he was on the breed. I had bred some of Whitey's females and they really crossed good on the Silverado Dan blood. And uh, we were going to do it again. And uh, I didn't have nothing. Then I kind of laid back because the dreamer got sick, took the heart out of me. Mm-hmm. And uh, we used dreamers frozen. Two times I had frozen semen on Dreamer, and we used it two times. And uh, 
got two litters of puppies, and when the puppies hit the ground, Dreamer went on the current reproducers list. How about that? Hmm. Because, you know, he wasn't too old not to be on there, but being active again put him on the current reproducers list, and we uh, got after some other guys and some other pups, and uh, we got Dreamer to number two current reproducer in the country. Wow, imagine that. And he stayed there until, uh, you know, 13, he aged off, and uh, he, that was it. Well, that's an amazing story right there. And, uh, and uh, you know, I remember the days when frozen semen was just being talked about. And we've talked about on this podcast before some of the first dogs that were, you know, Randy Fralick down in Texas, a veterinarian down there in Coon Hunter, got involved with, you know, they collected Spring Creek Rock and, and you know, and Lipper was collected and some of these dogs early on. But, you know, there was a lot of talk about, well, the frozen semen litters, you know, you don't get as many pups and this and that. But eventually, a lot of pioneers, you know, that really got involved uh, into uh, that uh, science. And man, now it's a fairly common thing. And the, and it's, you know, I, I think it's at least as successful as, as live breeding, if not more so. Um, you know, what's your thoughts on that? I, I think it is because the dog I have now that I push is a semen bred dog off Dreamer, and he is he had a a litter of eight mm-hmm. that lived. You know, yeah. had eight live yeah. puppies. They're all still out there somewhere. Well, we're gonna uh, the pup we're going to talk about today is is not even of the Walker breed, but I I have along with a partner up in Virginia a. Uh, a track man semen pup now, you know, and uh, so this, I believe, is going to be my first uh, semen pup. But, uh, yeah, it, it's fairly common now, and especially with transportation costs and all that. It's uh, I know back when I had a nice walker female, I called her Stone Stylish Kelly. She was out of PKC World Champion Silver Dollar Stone. And at that time, the all-time money leader, Mill Creek Molly, and uh, two-time truck winner, et cetera. Et cetera. And, um, you know, uh, Jerry Maul and I tried twice uh, well, the first time we tried uh, frozen semen uh, out of his uh, socket dog that was a was off of uh, Sackett Junior, and we didn't get any pups. In fact, I used a, a vet there in um, all the town just south of of uh, of Raleigh. There, I can't think of, and that doctor's name escapes me too. I'm. I'm beginning to get old, Mark, <laughs> and those names don't come as, as well. They come around, but it's kind of like a chip tooth on a flywheel. <laughs> you know, I mean, but at any rate, the first attempt did not work, and uh, I think that was probably a little bit of those, both dogs' uh, fault there. But uh, anyway, that being said. Um, 
So anyway, from that point on, now this Dreamer dog, I believe, did he produce the dog you're hunting now? Uh, yes, sir, he did. Uh, and that's what actually got the fire going back again in me to start running dogs hard. You know? Yeah. Well, we're going to talk uh, about him in just a minute, but I want to I want to stay on script here just a little bit. And uh, what what did you immediately see some things you liked about the Walker breed over the English breed that made you stick with it, or it, was that just individual dogs, or or what do you think? I think it was just individual dogs. Uh, the Bean Dog just had an unreal mouth and he put it in the dreamer dog this dogs you could hear for a mile in the mountains i mean they just had super booming mouths and uh and i, I just like that solid black look yeah on a walker yeah. dog so well when you say solid black you don't mean that they're coal black like a plot they did have white on them but they yeah, have a lot of black right they got a lot, a lot of black. They just got like white legs and you know, mm -hmm. the white tail tip, you know, white right. underbelly. Right. Mm -hmm. This uh, around the eyes, though, and the top of the head would be just solid black. Yeah. yeah. Mask, no, uh, no brown on the head, except the muzzle. You know, the muzzle, into the muzzle, mm -hmm. brown, for sure. Black, black, all black around the eyes and everything. Well, I'd like to get into more of a discussion on on. Uh, those dogs and that background and where those traits came from and all that, but we'll have to save that for another another day. Um, you and I, uh, I didn't know you at all until, I guess, back toward the end of, of last year, maybe the first of this year. Uh, yep. And... It's kind of funny how we came to know each other uh, was through Facebook, uh, <laughs> but <laughs> as so many, uh, I guess, relationships or friendships uh, start these days online, but um, I kind of... Uh, wanted to give the listeners just a little bit of background about this way we got together and all. Um, I raised a litter of plot puppies um, back, I can't tell you, the year, I was seven or eight years ago, I guess. Out of the dog that I had, I, I commonly called him Old Hoss. He was a, a registered plot dog that traveled with me. I estimated over 200,000 miles. He traveled with me around the country, and I hunted him in a lot of states. And I really liked the dog, and, and my listeners know about old hogs. Uh, a friend up in Pennsylvania, Amanda Alexander, had uh, raised the litter of puppies off, off of the famous Black Monday dog. Uh, that one virtually ever show that he was put in. He was a, a plot that won best in show in uh, AKC confirmation rings. Uh, quite honestly, in my opinion, the best-looking plot dog I ever saw. Uh, I saw him in the ring many, many times, but I knew that his background was in hunting dogs, 
and it went back to the Bayou uh, Jake Bread Dogs of Rex Morgan back in Iowa. I knew, uh, and also uh, the county line dogs of Christina uh, officers there in uh, Kentucky. And anyway, I kind of wanted a puppy out of that bloodline. I thought, you know, I'll get a good-looking pup that will hunt, and that was my idea. And I was with AKC at the time and living in Raleigh. And uh, um, anyway, I uh, arranged with Amanda to get a puppy off of um, Black Monday and also a female that came from some of the dogs of a, a very active plot guy back several years ago. Don't hear too much about him anymore named Elwood Simmons out in, in Brazil, Indiana, and Elwood's dogs, some of them came from Curtis Walker in West Virginia, one of the four Walker brothers that have had uh, plot dogs for a number of years. Anyway, I got this puppy. I named her Monday Morning Rain, which was af- after the Black Monday dog, and called her Rainy, and she was just a real great little uh, project. She was doing good. My buddy Lindell Price and I took her up to Ohio around Thanksgiving time, and she got started up there and was doing really well and brought her back home to North Carolina. And she got uh, into a, a deer race with a couple of hounds and ended up getting killed on the road, which was a real disappointment for me. So anyway, I... Um, contacted, uh, at some time later, I contacted Amanda and asked her if she still had any of the litter mates to Rainey, uh, that I would be interested in, in either, uh, well, I'll jump forward a little bit, and this is, I don't want to capitalize too much of the conversation here, but in the meantime, my friend Kevin Lundholm, the attorney in Ohio, had a litter of puppies. He had picked uh, two that he kept, males, and he contacted me when he heard Rainey had gotten killed and said, uh, you know, I've decided which male pup I want, and if you want the other one, I'll just give him to you. So that's how I got old Hoss. So later on, then I contacted Amanda Alexander and uh, asked about were there any litter mates to Rainey available, and and uh, she said yes, she had two, and I said, would you consider uh, me uh, leasing, buying, borrowing, <laughs> whatever, uh, one of those fe- females to breed to Hoss? And she said, I'll think about it. Well, then. Um, as the Grand American time grew near, it was some time since I'd heard from Amanda, and she contacted me, and she said uh, her one female, she called, uh, Amanda named her plots after uh, mobsters. Or, uh, she has uh, uh, this one called Mob Boss Guma. Uh, apparently, Guma is the name for a a, a uh, mobster's uh, uh girlfriend or whatever so anyway that's way too much information for somebody that's not a plot person (laughs) anyway i'm gonna wrap this little thing up and put a bow on it here um 
We did uh, get Guma down here to Florida, raised a litter of puppies. I kept a pup out of the litter. I named her uh, Bear Pen Tennessee Waltz and nicknamed her Dancer. Uh, I took, after I got her started in a pup pen in Mississippi, I sent her up to Tony Beals in Michigan. Tony unfortunately got sick and really wasn't able to hunt her much, but he did finish her the show champion and water champion. And um, then uh, as this uh, illness that Tony is is f- courageously fighting uh, got more intense, he said, Steve, I just, I, I've got to get rid of dogs. And so another friend that I haven't known all that long, Bill Scheninger up in um, Ohio, um, and I were talking, and I told him about Dancer, and uh, uh, he had had won plot days last year with a dog called Saddle Up Lazarus, and Lazarus uh, was a, a high-scoring dog, I guess, for three nights combined, won the Isaiah Kidd Award, and I'd been hearing good things about his puppies, so uh, Bill expressed interest in, get, in getting Dancer, which he did, and he bred her to Lazarus. And when the puppies came, about after about eight or ten days or so, Dancer's uh, stomach twisted, and uh, she uh, unfortunately died. So... Bill's wife, Cindy, raised this litter of pups on a bottle, and Bill had kept one back for me, and he showed me the pictures of the males, and and they were black-backed, brindle-legged dogs, which I've had several of those down through the years that I liked real well. So that's how I got a puppy, uh, and that's where Mark and I got to know each other, Right. Right. <laughs> well, I went way around the barn to get back here. <laughs> but it, the deal was, I, I said, man, I need somebody to help me start this pup. Or I need a, I can't. Well, my situation in Florida is such that I, I just really can't do a dog justice down here. So I said, I'm, I need a partner on this pup. So I said, what am I going to do? You know, plot people are typically, they like to keep what they breed in their backyard. You know, they're not too big on uh, partnerships and such. So I put a, a post on Facebook. Do you remember that post, Mark? I do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I said, you know, basically I, I'm looking for a partner on this dog. I believe he's well-bred and I believe he'll, He'll have a chance, but he's got to have somebody that can can uh, get it done. And I think if I remember <laughs> correctly, I said, if you're the right guy and you can get the job done, I'll ma- you know, we'll make you famous. And if not, we'll tell the world <laughs> about that, too, or I don't know, some crazy thing. But at any rate, I got, a, uh, I guess, a message or an email. What was it about... A, a walker dog man with some good hounds, and we're going to talk about your dog, uh, Crockett, here in just a minute. What was it attracted you to a plot dog? Well, I think it was my, uh, the looks, again, come into play of the bear dogs we were hunting. I was like, I, I like the brindle. 
and uh, you know, looking through the coonhound world and the books, nobody was really pushing a plot hard. And I thought maybe I should give it a run. And uh, how I got to meet you was through another big dog pusher was Keith and Andy Emery. Right. I, I messaged him and I said, you know, all these other breed people. I said, I'm looking for a nice bread plot to run. And it's like a day later, he sent me the message that you'd put on Facebook. And that's when I messaged you. <laughs> that's how it got started. <laughs> you didn't waste much time because it came pretty quick. And uh, so. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, he yeah. told me, he said, you better hurry up. Somebody will grab that up. So <laughs> <laughs> he told me. <laughs> well, you know, everything reminds me of a story. And you mentioned uh, Andy, who, of course, his maiden name is Elburn. And she and her sister, Nikki, I remember them when they were just in a stroller and in diapers at Autumn Oaks with her parents, Curtis and Kathy. Elburn and uh, been Redbone people for many, many years. A great, great family that I worked with uh, when we were hosting uh, the UKC World Championship in Logansport, Indiana. Kathy and her mother, and uh, uh, they prepared the dinner, appreciation dinner for our judges and all kinds of things. But known the Elburns for a long time, so that's a real strong coon hunting family. And I didn't know Keith until he and and uh, Andy got married and uh, really learned to uh, like and appreciate Keith a lot, too. So, yeah, and so I got a note from them. And uh, then you and I also have a mutual friend named Courtney Risk right. there in North Carolina. How did you and Courtney get hooked up? He come to me to breed to the Dreamer Dog. I see. Year, many years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, it just started off from there. We, uh, he come to the house. I always make fun. I like, hey, your bedroom's made up and ready for you to come visit. <laughs> well, he used to talk. Well, here again, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds, but when I first moved to Raleigh, North Carolina, I get a phone call, and it's Courtney. And of course, I did not know Courtney personally. I'd seen his name many times in the magazines because when he was in the Air Force and he was moving around, he was out in Washington State, and I, he was down in, uh, I think, New Mexico, maybe for a while, and different places. I saw this guy's uh, name. You know, and I knew that he was a coon hunter, and he knew David Anderson, a guy that I knew real well from at that time out in Washington State. And but anyway, Courtney called me, and he and I hunted together the whole time I lived in Raleigh and worked at AKC. And Courtney and uh, you know, and and his wife uh, took me into their home, and uh, when I moved uh, from. Uh, Raleigh uh, down here, uh, you know, Courtney helped me with the move. Oh, I could just go on and on again about Courtney. He's a great guy, great friend, a real coon hunter, and has had some really nice walker dogs. Uh, so uh-huh. so Courtney also gave you a, a good uh, re- review, so to speak. So uh, I said, well, this guy right here. And then so you and I, 
uh, I guess we got on the phone or we get on Messenger or whatever and kind of learned a little bit about each other. And and so I guess that brings us down to the fact that you and I co-own this plot pup from uh, Saddle Up Lazarus and, and Dancer that we call uh, Bear Pen Fever. Now, we're going to talk about fever in a little bit, about how we're how you are starting that pup and what you're seeing out of him and and uh, and all and and I want to I guess go into this what is I call the meat of this podcast is about starting and training pups um give me an overview of how you know what your philosophy is on starting pups mark about you know, basically when you like to try to start them, what you do with them day-to-day type thing. I actually just start uh, three months old, probably. Mm-hmm. Just let them be a puppy. Yeah, try to teach them a little bit of behavior when they're little. It helps. Uh, but three months old, I'll take them to the woods during the daylight. and We'll just walk. Get the creeks. I try to make it find a creek challenge enough for them to get in the water, and then I just kind of work my way to a little deeper water just to give them a little more confidence and just get them out. That's the main thing: spend time with them. You know, kept this pup busy. Now, to give the listeners a little bit of information, I guess was he what about four months old, five months old when you got him? I just turned five months old, I think. Okay. Well, so that typically is a little later than you would have liked to got the pup, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, and and I would agree with that, too. I, uh, you know, I'd raised several pups over the years, and, and rarely, I, well, actually, I can only recall a time or two that I bought a dog over all those years. And I usually started a puppy that my dad and I had bred uh, and, and raised. But I like to start them when they're real young. And I I would, you know, spend a lot of time with them, touching them, going over them with my hands, uh, being there around the kennel, around the female, even before their eyes are open, get them used to human touch, Um I know Dancer was the boldest pup in the litter. She was the first one out of the whelping box. She was a climber. You had to watch her. She'd climb out of an exercise pen, uh, you know, jump up in the fork of a tree. I knew that was going to be problems down the road because we really don't want to encourage dogs to climb, especially coon dogs. But – and I would do little things like little uh, scent exercises with my pups. I'd take a, a hot dog, you know, uh, and uh, I'd just cut it up in little medallions, you know, about a quarter, uh, half inch pieces and let that pup out there just walking around the yard and I'd toss a piece of hot dog down and just walk that way. And he'd be there smelling around. He'd find that thing, you know. And then, oh, there's one there. There must be another one. So I'd toss another one a little farther out, let him go find that one, and then another one, another one. Then maybe I might take that and rub it up on the side of the tree a little bit. 
And then later on, I'd take it and kind of rub it along the edge of, the, of my tailgate on the truck and let them get to smelling up there on the, on the tailgate and getting up, you know. Uh, just little things. And, and, you know, I don't think there's any set thing that you can do with a pup like that. I know my buddy Nubbin Moore, he likes to take a coontail on a fishing rod. And when the pup's real little in the pen, he'll take that. And I know my other friend that hunts with me at the White River every year, Morris Hardy, out in Mississippi, I saw him doing the same thing with pups last fall. Just take that coontail and just kind of dangle it and run it back and forth and get those puppies chasing after it and barking at that, you know. Just little things that help them to express themselves and, and use their nose a little bit. You have any thoughts about any of that kind of thing? Oh, well, yeah. I, uh, I'm like you. I, when they're young like that, I'll put little treats down, maybe a little handful of dog food, throw a few kernels out, and let them just watch them work. You make them, you know, you got to use that nose to find what you want. And... uh yeah, doing that and yes. just getting them out, walking, letting them mm-hmm. smell everything. Take them deep in the woods and just sit down on a bucket. Sometimes I do, and just let them go. Mm-hmm. Sit there and watch them. I know what I I used to do is is um, take them for walks like that in the woods, and I'd try to hide from them and let them find me. And usually I'm talking maybe just one pup at a time. Occasionally you might have a couple. But uh, it's it's always easier, I think, to work with one puppy because you take out that play aspect. Oh, oh, yeah. Absolutely. One dog at a time. Right, right. Training. uh, Yeah, I would like you. I would, uh, if he would get gone out of sight, I would move. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Somewhere where I could get out of sight of him coming back to that spot yeah. and then sit and wait on him and let him hunt me down. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, that, that I remember. Yeah. I remember Dancer one time. I took her up to Virginia and she was just about four months old. And I took her out that night when my buddy uh, Lindell Price up there has Walker Dogs, of course. And we took her and, um, you know, uh, she went, she would always go with the other dogs, and she went about 400 yards in there with his dog. And finally, I, of course, I had a, the garment on her, and uh, she decided that she would come back. So, but instead of, uh, you know, I we were up on a ridge by that time. We had walked up this creek. Well, she tracked herself all the way back that 400 yards down that creek to where she was when she left me. And then she found my track where I'd gone up on the ridge, and she tracked me up there. So I thought, man, that's that's a good sign right there, that pup's using her nose because that's the only way she would know to do that, you know, uh-huh. because she really hadn't gone, uh, well, at any rate. Um, well, you know, I think that's so important, and it's a good first step. And listeners out there, we get a lot. I used to get a lot of mail, uh, and maybe not as much with this podcast as I did with the one before from young hunters or new hunters that are, you know, just 
basically clueless, and I don't use that as a negative term, about how to start a coonhound puppy. And so trying to tell them these things, you know, but it's always good. You got a city park, you got a dog park somewhere, whatever. Yeah, of course, just, yeah, to get them spend in the time world. with them. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, spend that time. Uh, okay, and and uh, you know this this puppy. Uh, uh, I have another project going uh, with a friend named uh, Keston uh, Jesse up in uh, up in uh, Virginia with this uh, Trackman Seaman pup, but. Um, you know, loading in the box and taking the dog around just down to the store or to the post office or I don't advocate you take it to work and leave it all day in the dog box, but it's good, don't you think, to get them out as as early as you can and, and that way they don't get sick. You know, this, this track man puppy was getting sick in the box, but uh, she's gotten used to, to riding yeah, now. Yeah, if you can get them out, if you're just going to the store, put them in the truck, front or in the dog box, and ride them down the road. A lot of times, me and Crockett, we travel alone. Uh, he rides in the front with me. He's the best well-mannered dog that you can own right now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, how do you teach one to lead? Usually, I'll take a young dog like I did Fever. I will, I will take him to hunts. Or bench shows, even though he ain't old enough back then to go, just have him there and letting him watch everything and lead him around. You just need to break a small switch off with some leaves on the end, and I, he get to pull into or not. Just take him leaves and just tap him on the nose and make him stay beside you. It, it, you don't have to beat the dog. Right. Well, that's one thing that I I try to advocate here on this uh, podcast. I'm not a I'm not a beater. I mean, that that, you're just hurting the dog. You're not helping the dog. Well, that's it, and they don't understand. You know, yeah, they don't. I think back when I was a kid trying to train the dog to stand on the bench, and I was Uh in the backyard, and I was being pretty heavy handed with this dog, this pup. And my mother looked out the kitchen window, and she stepped to the door, and she said, come here. She said, if I see you slap that dog again like that, that's going to be the end of you and that dog. I'm I'm not going to let you mistreat a dog. And I won't say I haven't ever done that down through the years. I'm not proud of it. But I learned uh, quite some time ago that it's better. And you know what? I, I noticed this in the bench shows. It, it just seems like that these ladies have pretty much taken over the bench shows. You know, they don't use, you don't see or rarely would you see a lady handler taking a heavy hand with a mm-hmm. dog. You know, they teach them through repetition of patience and and so forth. And and uh, but at any rate, yeah, that's an important thing to to remember. I think for anybody to remember when you're training these dogs, they need to understand what you're trying to tell them. 
they they've got to be smart enough. They have to have intelligence so they can uh, absorb and apply the training that you're trying to give to them. But they're not going to do it. It's just like the overuse of an e-collar. You know, you put that dog in a mo- mode where his mind is totally blown. He can't think. Do you, how clear would you be thinking if you had a hold, took a hold of a an electric fence? Yeah. The only thing you'd be thinking about is getting away from that fence. You wouldn't be thinking, well, now if I hadn't of taking my hand down my pocket and put it up here on this fence and all. You know, that's what I did wrong, so I won't do that anymore. No, you're not thinking about anything, but get away from it because it hurts, you know. And uh, in the later years in your dog training, uh, a guy told me one time that your dog, He's just like a person, and all he's wanting is your affection to loyalty to you. So, later, you know, far as Crockett, uh, I don't shoot coons out to Crockett. There's no need. All he wants to do is please me, and me rewarding him is just patting him up good on the tree and really getting him going. And uh, that's all he wants because, I mean, he's a three-year-old dog, and he last year he had one coon shot out to him. And I didn't even shoot it out to him. It's somebody else because their dogs was there. So he wouldn't even have a coon shot out to him last year if it wasn't for that time. But Well, I think that definitely dispels the myth, but some people have that you got to kill a lot of coons too. These dogs, and I think that's a big mistake. And I think most hunters have grasped onto that. They understand that it really causes more problems than it solves, you know. Um, Well, okay, let's talk about That's a great segue into talking about your Crockett dog. Uh, I want to talk about him, and I want to talk. You've got this dog. He's, what is he, three years old now? He's three years old now. Okay. And he's a Grand Knight Champion too. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. That's right. And he, uh, did, did he make the Grand Show Champion two yet? Uh, he needs one more to be Grand Show Champion two and one more to be HTX two. I see. Okay. Tell us about him, where, you know, his breeding. I, I assume you bred him yourself, didn't you? Uh, Waddy Marshall bred my okay. frozen to one of his females up in Kentucky off a uh, Silverado Dan female. Okay. And uh, I told him, I said, yeah, go ahead. Let's use one and see what happens. So we had eight pups. Uh, I still had an old dog, and I was kind of like, I don't know. I'm, I'm not. I was kind of doing the bear hunting thing then too, and I was like, I don't know if I want a coon dog. So I was holding off. Well, this one pup never got picked up. Nobody never picked him. And me and a bear hunting buddy went up there and got him and brought him to the house. Mm-hmm. And uh, he ended up uh, 
I ended up buying his half from him, and I so on Crockett myself now because he just started to spark in me, just reminded me so much of the Dreamer dog when he was young that I just wanted to run with him, man. Okay, so how old was he when you went out to Whitey? You said, it was it at Whitey's you went out? Yeah, he uh-huh. was up at Whitey Marshall's. He was, uh, well, he was like 10 weeks old, maybe. Okay. Yeah, just, yeah, just he, a baby. He was just, mm-hmm. Yeah, he was just a baby. He's just a licensed one nobody wanted to take. Mm-hmm. Whitey called me and said, got this licensed one left. You sure you don't want one? And uh, I know when I seen him, I, you know, it was on men. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. Well, okay. Uh, how did you start him? What? Tell us about his progression and, and how Basically, you Basically, we, uh, I would take him, we had young bear dog puppies. And they were up in the mountains below Blowing Rock in the, in the, off the parkway there. And I would take him up there and then we'd go on these long hikes and he would just run with them little, them young bear dog puppies. They were about the same age mm-hmm. and the same size. So they... They just got in the woods and run through the creeks, and I just kept walking them and, and uh, letting him grow up. Uh, kept him in the house most of the time, uh, just letting him be part of us. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it just calmed him to where he's just, he so, could come in the house and lay on the blanket and be like a house dog if he wanted to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know that's intelligence there, and and also temper. You know the temperament that's. You know you see some dogs are bred uh, so hyper, and there's so much energy, and it it manifests itself in a lot of ways. You know some of them never shut up. Some of them, you know. Uh, go to the bathroom right in front of the gate and jump up and down in it all day. And and then there's those other dogs that just seem to be understand, you know, okay, I'm in the kennel uh, here. You know, it's time to shut down, lay around, be lazy until the guy comes with the feed bowl or whatever, or, or he's wearing a light and it's time to go to the woods. They get fired up then. I think a lot of that's in the intelligence and in the uh, genetics of a pup uh, that makes him, you know, either calm or hyper. Do you believe that? I do, because uh, he, he acts just like the groomer dog did. Uh, just calm, sits around, don't say nothing. Just, I like to say, when we go to the vet, he rides in the front with me. And he just sits over there and don't, you know, some dogs just all over the cab of the truck. You can't ride them in the front. Yeah. Uh, well, let's talk about Crockett a little bit. I mean, how how was he at, at, you know, from you got him, say, at about 10 weeks old. How did he progress? How did he act and all? He would just had uh, great common sense, I believe. He just calm, wasn't. You know, wasn't kennel crazy when he was out there. Uh, bring him in the house. He was fine. But he was a little hesitant on coon. Okay. Uh, I would say you just need to let the pup be a pup until, you know, 
10 months or something anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think we all have that, that ceiling there that we think, well, if by 10 months, I'd like to see him doing this or that, or by a year old, I'd like to see him doing that, this or that. And we talk about how when I was a kid or, or a young hunter, uh, most hunters didn't even worry about a dog till he's two years old. You know, the way pups are bred today and all, they're, they're going to be showing you something before that time. But uh, I would say, just as a rule of thumb, uh, you know, if the pup's a year old and not showing any uh, improvement or any uh, indication that he wants to hunt or, or, or fight game or tree game, uh, you may have a problem there, but uh, I wouldn't be yeah. at all worried uh, up until that point. Although we all love those early starting pups, I'm sure. Well, okay. So when, about what age did you start taking Crockett to the woods? Uh, yeah, Steve. He was uh, about eight months old before he would uh, mess with the king, and uh, then I started hunting him with my. I have a senior dog. He's pretty old. He's also a hardwood dreamer. I call him Dream Chaser. He's also a dual grand. He was about nine years old when I started putting Crockett with him. So he wasn't a fast hound at that age, but it was good for him to teach Crockett to run a track because he was a big mouth opening dog, give a lot of mouth on the ground to let Crockett hear him and get him going get him on the right track uh good broke hounds also is a key thing if you're gonna hunt a pup make sure you're hunting him with a broke dog not something out there running deer or off game uh but after i got him opening a little bit on the ground i would i would take a coon and uh just cut it in an open field and let him see what he was really chasing and run it across the open field and when it went up a tree and you can do this day or night nighttime we both can see what's going on and uh that would give crockett the idea well this animal runs across the ground and climbs trees and uh that's where i bring in the tree and asset of the coon hunting thing is let them see a coon climb a tree watch it go up, hold him back till the coon goes up and let the dog go and let him watch the coon climb. And that, that just, to me, seems like that builds a fire in them. Uh, I open field race to a tree line and the, the dog right behind it and it hits a tree, then they know this is what this animal does. This is what I've got to do. Yeah, I think with, with uh, pups, you know, there's a lot of monkey see, monkey do. Uh, you know, they really do. And when you were talking about hunting Crockett with a, an older dog and all, I think so many, uh, well, I don't want, I don't want to point a finger at people that are doing this because they may not have access to another dog, but there seems to be this real undercurrent in our sport nowadays that a, a dog has to hunt by itself. It's got to be a loner. It's got to be independent. So there's a lot of people that are trying to start coonhound puppies just on their own without any help from another dog. Now, my friend up in Virginia, uh, 
Keston has a, a real nice pup out of the Cooney Valley pack dog, a, a power pack bred dog of Sean Burdens, and a Lone Pine female uh, from Randy Smith. That's where he got the pup. And he has uh, is still training the dog, of course, uh, but basically this pup is mm, going to be a year old next month. And he's keeping track, and he's already treated about 30 raccoons by himself, uh, hunting around dairy farms. But, you know, and Keston basically just started taking the dog to the woods, just like we're talking about. He was out there many, many nights before the pup ever did anything. Uh, You know, at first he would walk along with him, then he'd start venturing out a little more, a little more. and all, and then, you know, I remember when he, he called me to tell me the pup had treated his first coon and all. Well, you can do that. You can start a pup like that. But I think it's better to start a pup with a good, straight, honest coon dog. Do you? I do. I, uh, it can be done both ways. It just takes more time and more footwork if you're going to train them by themselves. Uh, I think an older dog will give them somebody to go deeper with and it'll give them more confidence to be out there with another dog. Right. Uh, It just just takes longer if he's just by himself to want to wander out four or 500 yards on his own as a young dog. Uh, I think an older dog helps a young dog learn it to get gone and get, you know, four or 500 yards or however far you like for them to get. Um, but after they get trained, I do like to hunt mine by themselves. Uh, I think that does help them also. Once they get where they'll run tree a coon, uh, there ain't nothing wrong with hunting them by themselves to keep them, to give them their own confidence in themselves. Right, right. Well, I agree with that too, uh, wholeheartedly. And I guess always that I, when I started pups, I had, you know, I'd, I went through all the the stages that we've talked about today about uh, taking them out by themselves, uh, you know, walking them through the woods, letting them get across the creeks, through fences, all that sort of thing. Uh, and uh, but then. You know, as they get big enough to keep up, and I think that's kind of key there, is that they don't, uh, if they've got go to them and and they want to, you know, they're going to develop some bad habits sometimes if you take them too young. They're going to, oh, yeah. you know, going to run dog tracks, for instance, you know. And uh, another, we already touched on the fact of not taking those puppies with another pup learning yeah, just like a kid in school, they'd have re- recess for all six or seven hours if they could. Um, so, but no learning takes place that way. Uh, all right, let's. Okay, so then Crockett just basically he he developed at a at a what you would call a normal pace. Uh, uh, yeah, he was a normal pace dog. Uh, he picked it up. Once he got 10, 11 months old, he really 
picked it up quick then, but he was just slow, slow getting there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think at just a couple of days over his first birthday, uh, I put him in a hunt and uh, put a second place on him. Wow. Uh, yeah. And uh, that's just like his daddy. His daddy went to a hunt, I think, on his birthday, and I placed him uh, second also. Well, Mark, besides Crockett, I know that you have uh, a couple of other Walker dogs. Tell me a little bit about them. Okay, Steve, I have uh, one I call Tree Singing Dixie, which is a full litter mate to Crockett that uh, was passed down to me. Uh, she's already a grand show champion. Uh, she will run in Triacoon. I just hadn't put her in the hunts because I spend all my time titling Crockett. Uh, uh, I have another one. He is an 11-year-old dog. He's also a direct son of Hardwood Dreamer. He's a Grand Knight champion also. Uh, he's out of a Nighttime Savage female I used to own. Uh, mm-hmm. He's just... Uh, he's. Still got good health, doing great. He ain't just slowing down now. I got you. Well, that's the thing about these dogs. They just don't live long enough. And that window that we get to have them and really, you know, when they, uh, it's always, to me, it's fun to start them as pups and see them. That's the most exciting time for me. Uh, But then it's equally exciting, you know, when they do get uh, into being a finished or nearly finished dog up around that three-year-old mark and all, that they start making some noise in uh, in competition. And that's always a fun time with, uh, with them, too. Well, I know you're a walker man, but here you are. You've got this, uh, what is he now, eight yeah, months? Uh, doing well, I think. Well, uh, you know, that's what kind of brought us together. If he never makes anything, I'll be glad for that because uh, I've enjoyed your friendship and uh, getting to know you. Uh, You have some experience hunting uh, plot dogs, uh, mainly bear hunting. And uh, you, I think you mentioned that already, that that you kind of enjoyed hunting bears with the plot dogs. Do you see any differences at this age, say at eight eight months old, uh, between the plot dog and the walker dogs that you've you've started? Is there a, a comparison you could make there with them at all? Uh, with this plot dog, I'm, he is uh, actually above average is getting started early in my book. I think uh, he's, he's right up there with some of the best I've had of getting started early. Uh, I've already been working with him on the bench. He's already running treated coon on his own split treat. Uh, he is doing a absolutely great job right now. Well, we don't want to jinx him here too much, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the, this thing is falling right in place for me because my uh, idea when Bill Scheniger told me that he had this puppy and and it became a special pup to me because it was a grandson of of old Hoss and um, 
and it gave me an opportunity. And then when we lost Dancer, it just made him all that more important. I remember Dancer so well as a puppy, and she was just so full of it. She was just the most uh, venturesome, bold uh, puppy, you know, my wife told me at the time, she says, I really don't care which one of these pups you keep as long as it's not her. So she's into <laughs> everything. And uh, lo and behold, that's what happened. Uh, but anyway, that's a that's another story. But it it was just special to me to be able to get this pup. And uh, now it's working out just the way I'd envisioned it in that I'm getting these reports from you and these videos, and you've been great to give me feedback, information on the pup, that uh, it's allowing me to be involved, you know, with with the dog at an age here and especially living where I do that I wouldn't have been able to do. So I'm really uh, appreciative of that. so you think uh, as in terms of uh, the puppies that you worked with in the past, he's average or, a bit or above average for his age? Oh, yeah. He's uh, he's probably above average for uh, picking up stuff and uh, being very bold. He's definitely taken after Dancer because he is into everything. <laughs> is that right? <laughs> <laughs> I think he thinks his name is Ant. Right now, <laughs> uh, pups, uh, and that's one thing that we I've said before on podcasts, and you can't say it enough. I guess you got to be patient if you're going to work with pups, because they're going to do things that are going to get on your last nerve sometimes. And uh, well, absolutely, yeah, and mostly uh, trying to keep pups around like I do uh, here. Uh, when I do have a pup, is uh, the chewing factor. Does he like to chew? Uh, no, he hasn't. Uh, really, you know, most of them will go for the water bowl and tire it up, but he's left it alone pretty good. Uh, mm-hmm. He slides his feet pan around, but it's metal. He can't hurt it, but he's not bad on the chewing. He's just everything outside the kennel because you know he's got his i can open his kennel and he's got a lot to run in and and now outside that lot he likes to get into the water hose uh, (laughs) anything laying on the ground (laughs) oh yeah yeah and that brings a story and of course i my listeners always (laughs) know that there's a story just about and everything but um my dad would say when he was a kid growing up on the farm there in, in Middle Tennessee, he and his brothers had the cur dogs. And uh, you need to go out and look. Um, you've left a jacket or or a, sh- a sweater or something out uh, down at the barn or maybe or somewhere around because old Pat or old Mike are not here. And... Uh, They'd go and look, and and whatever they dropped, that cur dog, one or the other of them, would be laying there on that piece of clothing, <laughs> you know. And I don't know what they. I guess they just knew that hey, you know, this belongs to the boys. I guess we better lay here and protect it. Of course, 
those cur dogs back in that day is kind of like old Yeller, I guess. You know, they were everything. They they herd and and guard and and of course hunt. Was kind of envious as my dad would tell me those stories about growing up as a kid that I didn't live on a farm and have dogs like that. You know. Because they could just whistle them up a dark and, and, you know, head for the woods. You know, it was the woods were all around. They didn't ever drive anywhere to go hunting. Didn't even right. have a car. My grandfather was legally blind. All he had was a team of mules and a wagon. And, of course, my dad was born in 1920, so, you know, that was a different time. But, uh, yeah, I always, uh, you know, the plot dog – I always called him the utility dog of the Southern Appalachians. Um, you know, he did kind of fit that old yellow mo- uh, mold uh, of uh, being a, a kind of a, a frontier dog, you know, and uh, maybe a little more than the other dogs. You know, all of our coonhound breeds kind of trace their roots back to the hounds that came from England and France. Except the plot dog, you know, and and he came from Germany originally, so it made him a little different, I guess. And it kind of maybe I've got a or Ella does has this uh, miniature dachshund. He he really crashed the miniature barrier. He's uh, I think it can only be eleven pounds and still be considered a miniature. So he's about fourteen pounds at eight months old. But uh, I see that that. Uh, intelligence also see some stubbornness you know and um, do you see any stubbornness in this pup uh yeah he's sometimes he's a little stubborn about getting in his lot uh, mm-hmm. once i let him run he he wants yeah. to go he he's got what i like about him uh i can put feed in his pan and he'll go stand at the gate to want to go get in a truck instead of eat so i like that in a dog yeah, yeah. Showing that he, he'd rather hunt than eat, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I like that. Uh, yeah, yeah, I got, you know, Crockett's the same way he does goes and eat. Uh, well, let's... Bar, you know, I, I usually like to swim my dog. I did the old drink, like a retrieving toy, uh, just in case he didn't bring it back. I, well, I didn't have to go swim for it. <laughs> but this plot, I did that with him like one or two times, and I've... He ain't had the rope on the toy again. He's it's like first time I throwed it, he went and got it and brought it right back to me. And it's been like that ever since. He's just uh, picks up really quick. Yeah, well, I noticed that in the videos that you're showing me. Now, uh, tra- uh, traditionally, the plot is a good water dog. They seem to take the water really well. And down through the years, there's been a lot of good plot. Uh, swim race dogs in fact uh, fever's mother dancer made her uh, her championship um, in in what ukc water races before tony got sick and that kind of put you know uh, a stop to that but uh, uh, and, and of course she's she's gone now but i th- think maybe that just from watching him and the way he swims with that uh, his body low in the water and, and basically like alligator not much more than his nose sticking out of the water when he comes across that pond he he's a natural <laughs> swimmer isn't he yes he he does very well and i like doing it uh as far as puppy training 
it just builds so much muscle in a dog. And mm-hmm. uh, I think that's how he can keep up with the older dogs already. He's just got so much muscle from the swimming. It's just made him fast. Well, I know that that's been one of the ways that people, even show uh, show enthusiasts, have built muscle in their dogs is by swimming them. And typical ways, if you don't have a water race pond and a, and a cage coon or anything, which we you haven't done that yet with Fever, have you? Uh, actually, had him swim across a, a water race pond with a with a lure in front of him. Uh, I have not, but we're uh, probably going to try that this weekend. I see. Well, I know guys have have actually put them in a uh, take a rowboat out and let the dog swim along, you know, I guess with a trolling motor or whatever. You have to be careful that your dog don't get in the propeller. But, uh, uh, yeah, swimming is excellent exercise. It is for anybody, and and the dogs especially. And uh, he's he's typical of the old-time plot dogs and uh, in that he's got, kind of heavy hair. He's not a real slick-haired dog. And he's got a fairly short tail with a strong root, which was always a feature of the old old plot dogs. As I was coming up as a kid, the dogs that my dad raised and all. So he really looks like a plot in, in all aspects. And, uh, but uh, when you first got fever... What were some of the first things you did with him, if you remember? Uh, first thing I did was uh, I took him to the woods and waxed, uh, found a good crossing, a couple creeks crossing, and go up each little finger of the creek, just let him work, play. I just kept him in the woods. Yeah. They learn so much that way. And I used to say in some of my writings, you know, you you do that with a pup until all the, the new wears off. Because when a puppy goes out there in the woods, everything's new to him. And we've talked about this on podcasts before. A dog's nose is an amazing thing. And the example, you walk in a room, you hear uh, the wife's got uh, hamburgers on uh frying in on in the skillet well a dog doesn't only smell the hamburger he smells the lettuce the tomato the mustard the pickles <laughs> he he can distinguish the smells of everything that's out there for a young pup all the different sights and smells and things that get his attention you know when he's very young and uh I think guys make a mistake, you know, well, this dog, he didn't check any trees or anything. He didn't, you know, he he doesn't act like he's going to be much of a hunter. Well, he's learning, you know. Did you, um, Fever was fairly uh, quick study in that regard, though, wasn't he? Yeah, he's he's very quick on picking up the scent. And uh, any off game, uh a place I drive up is full of rabbits, but he never wants wants to get down and trail the rabbits. He he shoots on through the field and gets in the woods uh, like he already knows what he's supposed to be hunting. 
Yeah, he, he's been uh, been really fun to see from a distance here. And I guess, you know, what we hope to achieve with this podcast today, Mark, is to give people, uh, first of all, if they're training a puppy, uh, just give them some, something to go by. You know, there's so many uh, people now that are getting coonhound puppies and haven't had the benefit of of growing up in the sport or having, you know, mentors or whatever to help them. So, you know, all of this, um, the hound is going to use his nose. That's going to be his number one tool, you know, in, in his his toolbox if he's going to make a coon hound. It's knowing how to use that nose, and virtually everything he does is going to be linked to that to that, uh, his ability to figure out scent trails and figure out which way they go and, and all that. What was the, uh, first time that, that fever actually kind of went with the dogs or maybe opened on track or something that kind of was a, was a little bit of a milestone as far as, uh, encouraging you that he might make a dog. I think he was about getting close to seven. He's probably still six months old, and I took him and uh pretty good place to get on the coon. And, uh, and he'd fired in there pretty deep with Crockett, and I was like, well, that's pretty good. And uh, he got in there with him, and, uh, and then he and just opened with him. I was like blown away that he's already opening, and we hadn't been to the woods that many times together. Mm-hmm. And just uh, after that, uh, up on the Brushy Mountains, uh, I cut him with Crockett. He always works good with his nose. And uh, Crockett went on around the mountain, and uh, I was watching him on the Garmin, and he was working around the way from him, but ended up circling back to him and on yards in there. And he was in there with him when I found him. So I was like, <laughs> that's getting in there. Yeah, that's always encouraging, you know, when you see a pup with ambition, you know. And uh, I'm going to have to get my buddy Keston uh, Jesse on here and talk about this uh, Trapman uh, semen pup that we have. And, of course, um, she, you know, hasn't had the start that fever has as far as the time, the woods time and, and all that that, and the uh, time behind a good hound, you know, the way that uh, Fever has, but uh, not trying to really compare them, but uh, the uh, they are the same age within a day, and uh, it'll be kind of neat to see uh, how that's going. Um, well, for the benefit of our listeners, Mark, do you have any important first steps that you believe a guy should do when he gets a, a new project? Uh, my number one thing is keep them healthy. If they're not healthy, they can't perform good dog food, uh, flea and tick medications. Uh, you got to keep them healthy if you want them to run up front and I always spend time with them. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there, there was the old dad, you call it maybe from the mountains or from, in this sport at all, you know, you shouldn't 
pet a hunting dog. You shouldn't, uh, you know, you'll spoil them. They won't hunt for you. And to that, in that regard, I can remember uh, some experiences back over the years when a, a dog, especially a young dog, would get spoiled uh, and you could move that dog to a new owner and he'd take right off. Uh, but I don't think so so much with these pups now. Uh, I always spend a lot of time with the pup, and uh, I don't think, you know, that it makes them want to hang with me when we go in the woods. Uh, what's your thoughts on that? Uh, I agree. Uh, like my dogs, I know two of them I got now. Uh, if they go to someone else's house, they are, uh, they won't hardly hunt for them. But when they come to me, they, you can tell they're back home. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I reckon I spoil them a little bit too much, but, but they handle for me and perform for me. But, and that's what my dogs strive through just to please me. And I reward them with, uh, uh, well, you know, that, that brings up a point to me, and as I look at the competition world today, and, uh, you know, we ne- definitely know that today's competition dog is pretty much a wild, crazy, go-yonder hunting dog. I, I yeah. get some flack for saying cr- they're crazy and whatever, but uh, I've heard podcasts from some of the top handlers to say, you know, that putting a handle on a dog is something they never cared about doing because they wanted them to be wild and crazy, get them off the tree wherever they can get them type thing, you know. And there's that aspect. Then the other thing to me is a lot of these dogs, if you see them, if they're owned – by, uh, let's say, a person that has several dogs out there competing on the circuit with several different handlers. And you watch the uh, the results and so forth, and from hunt to hunt, you see these dogs today, they're with uh, handler X, and next weekend they're with handler Y, and the week after that they're with handler Z. And... You know, it just, I wonder about, I guess it's that type of dog that doesn't, has been trained just to get away from the handler, don't have anything to do with the handler, and it doesn't really matter to them who turns them loose. And I guess there's always been dogs that are like that, but then... You know, for most people to really enjoy the sport, unless they're going on the big stage in competition where things are, you know, fast and furious and uh, you're walking a mile to this dog tree, then you got to walk a mile to the other dog and so forth. It's going to be a lot more pleasurable if you have a hound that does bond with you and does want to hunt with you or for you and appreciates the fact when you come into the tree and put put the snap on him. And know that the peaceable dogs around the truck, around the the clubhouse and so forth, I've, I've seen them for many years. But they're just a, 
I don't know. I, I you know we talk about dogs don't have the homing instinct anymore uh, because they simply don't have to. We go and get them. We've got the the Garmin, and we can go find him wherever he is and, and get him. So there's no reason for him to come looking for us. And if he could, most handlers don't want him to. You know. Right. Yeah. What's your thoughts on all that? Well, I know that's what a lot of the Fast and Furious hunters like in them, but to me, I like to have a handle on my dog. I just I just don't care for them to be that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my dog performs, I mean, great the way I've done him, and I've been out there. I've qualified him three times or two times for the world, and three times for tournament champions now. So I, it's I just, just don't like that type of dog. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I've always had dogs that would go hunting, uh, even in the flatlands of Michigan, but up there, you know, you've got a lot of coon. And so, you usually don't have to go that far to strike one, but some nights you do. And, you know, I've made those mile walks to my dog's tree. Thankfully, it was flat country, and I could probably get out of the field and walk down a road most of the way and then cut in to the woods, you know. And But uh, I never preferred that wild and crazy uh, hunting style. I'm much... Uh, you know, sometimes these dogs out hunt their mouth and, uh, then, you know, that doesn't help you at all. But, uh, uh, what would be your advice? You said you put them in the woods, you spend time with them beyond that. When they get a new pup, what should they do? Uh, I like to introduce them slowly to a coon. Don't force them on something they don't want to do. Uh, if they're not ready, if they're scared of the cage coon, take it away, bring it back next month. And uh, my favorite thing to do on a young pup, first seeing a coon, if he'll bark at it, is take him open field daylight and let him have a sight race. And that gives them an idea. Well, he runs across the ground, goes up a tree. If he'll tree on it, that's to go pet him up, uh, show him that that's what he's supposed to do. Uh, just uh, take your time with them. Don't push them. I've had I've had a dog over a year old. I think she's getting close to a year old, and I had her in the woods and another dog. It's back when I hunted English. And that the one that was, he was about the same age as the one in our tree. And she was scratching up the leaves and laying down, taking a nap <laughs> while he was treed. And I thought, well, that's going to be a house dog or a pet because she ain't going to make it. I ended up making her a night champion before I did the other one. Yeah, you bring <laughs> up a good point there, uh, Mark. Um about these dogs, um, sometimes that switch doesn't come on when we want it to. And uh, 
You know, I, I think about a, one of the former guests that I had on the podcast, Billy Dwyer, from down in Louisiana. And he's starting a pup. And he's having some frustrations. You know, he's taken this pup several times to the woods, and she's coon crazy. But she that switch hasn't come on as far as getting out there and striking a track. And some of, of puppies sometimes. We see this real bright star, you know, the cruise dog that I had, man, he... The morning I went up to Randy Smith in Pennsylvania and picked him up, he was down in, well, actually, it went the night before and we hunted. And all the morning I, I got up to leave, Randy had to go down in the woods and catch him. He was down there trailing, uh, and he was about four months old. And right away, the first I took him to White River, and the first tree I led him into, the other dogs a tree, when he got within about 20 steps of that tree, he threw that head in the air, went in there and smelled on that tree and sat down on his butt, started treeing, you know. It had me excited for sure. And that whole week, you know, he was out there working tracks, and I know we have one dog working his track in the water, and... It gets real quiet, you know, and then a dog opens and picks up the loose and it's Cruz, you know, and Nubbin comments about it. So anyway, I mean, he was a real early starter and, you know, had me excited from day one. But, um, you know, they're just different. They're all different. And my word to the listeners out there, especially younger people, is don't lose patience with your dog. Mark, I think you're a great example of how you need to spend time with the dog, keep it busy. You're swimming the dog. You're taking him. You took him out in the daytime as a puppy. You, uh, you know, you taught him. Well, so far he hasn't gotten all the way into loading on in the tailgate. I think you see he did it one time, right? Right. He he always puts his feet up there, but he ain't <laughs> he ain't too sure about jumping all the way in there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a little trick I used to do when it wasn't hard for me to climb up on the tailgate and jump back off is I used to just jump up on the tailgate and pull them up to me, you know, and right. and and st- it's kind of hard to stand on the ground and get your hand raised high enough to get up up, you know, all the way up on the tailgate. But I don't do that jumping around anymore. Those days are over for me. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, oh yeah, yeah. But anyway, it, it's this podcast is really just to encourage you out there if you've got a puppy, uh, and I know you've done your homework about getting a well-bred pup. Don't think that there's a one size fits all. That there's a pattern that you can lay down and say, okay, pup, this is what you know. At three months, you should be doing this, and at five months, that. They're all different. They all have individual personalities. Um, at this point in the game, uh, we're hopeful that old Fever's going to make it, aren't we? Oh yeah, I'm. I got high hopes for this one. Well, that makes me feel good because I I know you've had some good ones down through the years. And get anytime I can get a Walker man to hunt a plot, that's a good day. You know. Oh yeah, <laughs> you've just witnessed a miracle. Show out there, just about everybody in the sport knows Whitey. Was is, is he made any comment about you fooling with this plot? 
Uh, yeah. He's like, I don't know what you're thinking. Was his words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I imagine. I imagine there's probably a lot of our listeners are feeling the same way. But, you know, when I uh, did have a stud dog and advertised a little bit, you know, I would get uh, so many inquiries. I remember running an ad in American Cooner. I got 50 inquiries off of that ad, and there wasn't a handful of them that had a good plot female to breed. And they'd say, oh, I want a pup. I want a pup. Do you have any pups for sale? I said, well, I don't have any pups. I said, don't you have a good female you can breed? You can have a whole yard full of pups. And they'd say, no, I don't have one. I just kind of wanted, always wanted to try a plot. And I'm sure the other blish, whatever. And uh, and the plot is unique. And uh, But I've found with the plots, uh, if you get one, you get him, uh, once you get him going and all, he he wants to catch his game. That's that's what he's about. He likes to mix it up with that game. He, he uh, is bred that way. And uh, although I have had some that weren't all that gritty, but most of the time they are. But they're just a, a nice dog. They make a good companion dog. Sometimes they can be a little bit of a one-man dog. And I uh, don't know if we know anything about that with fever yet. But, uh, well, Mark, I have enjoyed this podcast opportunity with you. Uh, you and I do uh, message back and forth quite often and it's always good to hear your reports on old fever. And I want to bring you back on the podcast uh, from time to time to give us a little progress report about how the pup's doing. And uh, wish you much success with Crockett as you continue to build those Grand Night Champion wins. I'd say he'll be a Hall of Fame dog here one of these days for you. And, and I hope you go to the Tournament of Champions. Uh, I know you were out there this past year, and and uh, wish you good luck with that. Is there anything you thinking about these puppies, or a word that we could pass on to the to the listeners uh, that we haven't talked about? My number one thing is just spend time with them, uh, which I've said several times in this, but. Uh, Hate to sound like a broken record, but that's the main thing. Don't give up. Just take your time with them. Yeah. Well, you know, I had my fingers crossed because I had no idea what this pup would. Well, you know, I knew about his background and I knew the pedigree was there. I knew it was stacked on both sides with good coon dogs. But you never know with a pup happy that he, he's just as much yours as he is mine. But I sure appreciate the work that you're doing with him, and uh, we'll look forward to having you back on uh, pretty soon here, and we'll see how old Fever's doing. Hopefully you'll have uh, a report on, uh, you know, his ex- escapades on the bench and uh, and in the woods that we can, we can brag about a little bit. <laughs> Let's hope so, Steve. <laughs> All right. <laughs> That's Mark Miller, uh, Taylorsville, North Carolina. We've been talking about training puppies. And if uh, you just uh, 
fast forward to the end of the podcast. You need to go back and listen. We, I believe there's a lot of meat on this bone here, and uh, we look forward to uh, talking about fever again. Well, folks, that's all I have for this week. Uh, I hope you have a good week, that you're staying cool. And if somebody asks you where I am, just tell them, he's gone to the dogs.